This is an ABC podcast. About an hour's drive west of Casino in northern New South Wales, there's a small cattle property called Ewinga. That's where Jen Lewis and Hayley Katzen live. Jen established the property way back in the 1980s, and she built a mud, brick and timber house there, and she invited Hayley to join her there nearly 20 years ago. Jen knew how to do the work, how to raise the cattle, fix fences, pull feed from a truck, but for Hayley, this was all completely new. Hayley had led pretty much an urban existence up until then. She'd grown up in South Africa. She was a writer and an academic, and suddenly she found herself living on the edge of a forest. No shops, no post office, in a place where the mail is delivered only three times a week. Hayley never imagined that she would become a farmer's wife and a firefighter. Jen and Hayley fought against a fierce bushfire encroaching on their property, and they did it while Hayley was in her final week of chemotherapy for ovarian cancer. They saved their home, and the heavenly, drought-breaking rains have come at last. Hayley Katzen has written a memoir. It's called Untethered. And I called her while she was looking out at all the beautiful new green on the property. Hi, Hayley. Tell me how you first met your partner, Jen. I first met Jen about a year after I moved to the north coast of New South Wales back in 95. I was actually interested in another woman at the time, as these things go. And she was visited by friends, a carpenter and her girlfriend. And the girlfriend was Jen. And Jen had this huge big load on the back of her blue Daihatsu scat truck and she was roping this load down and she was carrying on about loads and truckies knots and, you know, there were bags of feed and there were all sorts of aspects that, you know, and a whole vocabulary that, to be honest, I had no notion of. I think I'd just come from teaching a law class at the university. So that was my first meeting of Jen. And in that moment, in her lovely, warm, country, hospitable way, she handed me an invitation to her 40th birthday party, which was that following weekend. And I was new to this community. I'd moved up from Sydney and I'd, you know, only sort of started meeting people recently. And yeah, she invited me to this party and I was completely excited because it meant I could see my crush again. And I talked to my my friend, um, who I call my game for anything buddy, because she still is all these almost, you know, 25 years later, to come with me. And we drove out to the farm for this party. So that was kind of my meeting of Jen was, you know, in town. But then it was in her place, which was quite extraordinary to get that opportunity with someone who is so very tied to place. So, so can I just ask you, that party you were getting ready to go to, you were looking forward to it because you could go and see your crush there. But that that crush wasn't Jen at that stage. Oh God, no, no, no. Jen was Jen was partners with someone else at that stage. I was. Um, <laughs> if someone's in a relationship, that's not really part of my out of beyond my mental bounds. But no, I was just really excited to meet people as well, and it was a whole new kind of candy store world. I think that's the thing when you when you move places, <laughs> you know, whether it's countries or cities or whatever, you kind of you come into a new world, and there's the terror. And the challenge that comes from the rupture and the displacement. But there's also this amazing excitement of the adventure of what's this all about and who am I going to meet and who's going to be there and will I fit in here too? And that's what happened for me 25 years ago when I came here. As someone, though, who's got a background as an academic, is there something very attractive about someone who knows what a truckie's knot is and how to unload a ute and who has all those incredible practical competencies that I'm guessing are probably well outside your background. Oh, look, I've just been awed by them. I've been completely um, magnetised and awed by them, really. You know, so unfamiliar. It's a deeply 
humbling thing when you're around people who are very skilled at what they do. And, you know, Jen's learned on the job. She would shudder to hear me say that, I, you know, she's very skilled at what she does because she always just says, I have a go and I've learned over years and years. But, yeah, for me, difference delights me. I love encountering new people. I love hearing about people from other places and cultures and traditions. I think that's the spice of life. And for us, it was certainly the spice of relationship as well. We were bringing vastly different things into a relationship. I kept trying to, you know, whisk her off to cities or gorgeous retreats and things. And she would take me down to camp in the swag next to the creek and build bonfires and It was just that absolutely beautiful nature of how difference can introduce us to new things. So when you said you didn't look at her in that way when you first met her, what was it that did make you look at her in that way? Well, we were friends for a number of years. All of us were friends. The carpenter girlfriend too, who's still a very dear friend. And the carpenter landed up doing a renovation on a house that I'd bought, um, turning a garage into some studies for my housemaid and I. And Jen was the offsider. So Jen and the carpenter spent a lot of time at the house over a number of months. The job took a while. And I got to know them over that time and I got to know Jen. And then the carpenter and Jen's relationship ended and Jen took to just dropping in for visits. She used to come to town, you know, with eggs and with hay and with chopped wood that she used to sell to try and supplement her income. And then suddenly... I don't know what it is, Richard. I'm not sure if you've had this experience. Just that notion, that nature, that thing of timing. You can be friends with someone for years and then suddenly there's a moment and it shifts and it actually turns to desire. Um, and But it's lovely to have that kind of friendship base, really, which then transforms into something else. So how good are you at the subtle art of seduction, Hayley? I'm completely and utterly hopeless, Richard, and I'm, I'm just useless. So I... I kind of I can talk endlessly about how we do that sort of thing but oh my god the only way for me is to be really straight out so I'm afraid I'd like to race you off to bed right now is about as close as I get to seduction oh right I thought you meant when you said you were hopeless that you were just too shy to say anything flirty and no, crack I on like bumble that out with things Richard unfortunately that's my problem I'm not that you know, I'm full of self-doubt, to be honest, but I'm not shy. So <laughs> the words tumble out and it's like, oh, my God, did I just say that? Um, I'm sure that's refreshing, very refreshing <laughs> for the uh, object of your affections. I hope so. But it didn't work on that occasion. Jen was Jen's the opposite. And she always says to me, it's hurry up and wait. It's a fire brigade saying we've got. But that's Jen. You know, it's like, just wait and see, Haley. Just stop trying to think it through and make it happen in your mind and then expect the reality to follow. So she taught me about patience, which drove me nuts. And eventually, yes, she invited me to come make hay, Richard. Come and make hay, huh? That's what she said? Come make hay. I took it completely figuratively, but she was bailing the mill paddock that day. Um, <laughs> so she meant it literally then, huh? She did. And, yeah, fortunately I arrived after dark. So the mill paddock had been bailed by the time I got here. Tell me about the dinner she made you that night. Oh, everything on the plate was homegrown, Richard. There was this amazing salad with everything picked from the garden, tomatoes, beautiful herbs and and lovely range of lettuce leaves and then potatoes as well. That She uses this term, she band, you bandicoot for potatoes. You kind of, I don't know, it's how you dig them up. And then also the steak, which she had put with a pepper sauce. It was all homegrown, everything on that plate. That's really lovely. It sounds very romantic. 
But did you take it that way? Well, I did, but I was also kind of a bit bewildered by the fact that I'd driven past cows on my way up to the house. That means ah, that oh somebody who'd been living out there then was on my plate. And I said to her, so did this cow have a name? And her response was, no, it's dinner or Easter, which has been a really interesting thing now, Richard, because we've had we've landed up having um, quite a big herd here and none of them have had names except for the bulls, which I think is completely weird for a, you know, especially for a, a couple of lesbians living in the bush. So the bulls have names and the cows don't. They've just got numbers. So, Hayley, tell me about the farm itself. What state was it in when you got there? Well, it was it was an amazing place, Richard, because Jen had been here since 1981 and it was a ute and a tent and a motorbike. And they had bought this block of land that had absolutely nothing on it until they managed to build the first sort of scantling sort of shack. And then that house was followed by another house, which was mud, brick and timber, which I think was about 10 years in the building. And it was a huge project. You know, all Jen's nieces and nephews had helped make mud bricks and a lot of people had contributed to building that house. It was a, it was a real work of art and love and beauty. That was how I came to this place. There was a huge big barn. There were machinery sheds. You know, the old shack had been turned into work sheds. So there were lots of dis- different structures. There were chooks and ducks and lots of horses at that stage. Billy was a um, the beautiful pony, had a, an injury, so Jen was giving him physio every day. So it was very much that kind of farmy world, which was quite bizarre for someone like me. I really don't come from this sort of world. Sitting outside around bonfires is lovely, and I've done a tiny bit of it in my life, but not much until I moved to the North Coast. So it was it was an extraordinary experience, beautiful out here. So Jen's built that property from the ground up. Basically. How is she when she's away? Does she hate being away from the place? Uh, yeah, that's always been an interesting one. When I first, you know, sort of would whisk her away for weekends, she said to me, the best thing about going with, away with you is coming home. <laughs> Um, she loves being here. I mean, she has she has had to travel with me because, you know, I have family all over the place and I like to go and I wanted her to meet people. And we have. We've gone on great adventures. Her favourite kind of travel is when we go on road trips with a tent. So, Hayley, it was never your intention to live on the farm with Jen. What happened then to change your mind? Well, in 2002, everything here burned down in a very big bushfire. So, What do you mean by everything? What, like the house and everything? Yeah, the house, everything. I was still living in town. We'd been together about five years by then. And there was no ways I was going to live here, Richard. Really, this, is, this was to me a middle of nowhere place. It was not my world. But what happened for Jen is friends, old friends were coming through and they came to my place. I lived right near the coast at that point. And Jen came to town. And as she left here that day, you know, the sky was a bit weird. It was a bit of a dust storm. And she was concerned. She didn't know what was going on. But she came to town. And that night the house burned down. It was an absolute freak firestorm that just devastated this area. Everything was burnt except for this duck pen and a few outdoor stables. And as we cleaned up, I kept thinking, wow, I'm actually picking up everything from all the people and all Jen's significant relationships that have preceded me. And I kind of learned about a house's construction from what I was picking up. Like you pick up triple grips and all these things. And I kept saying to Jen, can we reuse this? Can we reuse this? And, you know, you can't with most of it. The, the rubble from fire is amazing. So, yeah, so that was um, 2002, October 2002. And 
she came to live with me in town for a little bit. And after a year, she just said to me, I'm going to take the easy way out and rebuild, which I didn't know. I didn't really think that was such an easy way out, but it's her place, Richard. You know, it really is. So it was a bigger mental leap for her to leave yes. Yes. than to stay behind and rebuild everything from the ground up again. Yes, I think for her it was a bigger mental leap to leave. And, you know, she was by then a woman in her, she must have been mid to late 40s at that point. She was trained as a home science teacher. There was no way she was going to do that again. So, yeah, she chose to rebuild and I guess we did that together. So, in a way, Richard, that's how I wound up here. After years of swearing I would never live here and wondering where our relationship would go. And it was at a crossroads. And Jen had said to me, I didn't know if the relationship would last. Uh, we were so different. Our interests were so different. And she said to me, come on, just come and live on the farm. Three, call it a three-month free home trial. And I said, okay. And that's when the house burned down here. But walking through the loss and the trauma of that process and, you know, also with the whole community here because – Gosh, it's it's crazy for a small community. You know, the, the the firefighters who came up the driveway and saw this place alight and burning, these guys were so sad. You know, they were just so sad they couldn't save it. And that's, you know, that's how you feel as a firefighter. You just want to save people's houses. And in country areas, it's really hard. So, yeah, it was amazing for me to walk with her through it. And I think, you know, going through a fire will either knit you to a place or it will tear you away. And it knitted her and it knitted me. Hayley, I know you're not in central Queensland or outback WA or somewhere like that, but as a former city person, how remote do you feel living where you do right now? So there's something about this area, which is, it's a, I always think it's a dead end because it is a dead end. Like we go into forest, we're surrounded by forest here. And, you know, most of our neighbours love that. But once you're here, you feel like you are here and you don't want to just drive out every five minutes. There was one woman who lived here years ago who used to, she came to live with a partner and she didn't last very long. But every day she would drive the half an hour to the small town that has got like a, you know, typical country town, a pub, a police station, a post office, a co-op, and now there's a tiny IGA there and a school. But she would go and buy her strawberry milk every day. She'd drive in there, buy her strawberry milk and come home. But, you know, that's unusual. Most people kind of stay put and one neighbour here used to work in casino and do that drive every morning and every afternoon, which blew me away. Yeah, look, if it was public transport, I think it'd be easier. I think driving the big distance is fine for some people. I wouldn't choose to every day. So you have to learn to enjoy your own company. I think so, Richard. I think that's, you know, kind of what isolation this time is teaching everybody in our world. It's, it's quite fascinating to watch it. You know, I'd sometimes talk about this is a relationship hothouse. Unfortunately, we've had a very harmonious um, time largely, but certainly there've been lots of years for me where I felt quite lost and quite lonely. And, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly um, practical or manually skilled. In fact, I'm not. I've learned quite a bit, but um, mostly I would see no one for days other than Jen, you know, I walk every morning and I would sometimes walk on the road and a neighbour might drive by, which is rare, but a neighbour might drive by and stop and I'd have what I call my through the car window conversations, which are just lovely. And it's those sorts of 
Hugh Mackay talks about them as incidental encounters. It's just, you know, saying hello to someone or smiling at someone, not having a deep and meaningful or anything, you know, particular, but just that nod to another's humanity. I've missed that deeply. You know, there's no dog walking park to go to or or anything like that here. Um, you know, there, there's some people who play music and there is a jam session, I think, once a month at the hall. There's a community hall. I mean, it's an extraordinary little community, Richard, and I think maybe isolation makes that happen for people. The fire brigade, we've got a really great little fire brigade. And when we have our meetings, they're fun. You know, we all talk together and um, I, I usually facilitate them and I'm a bit ignorant about all sorts of things. So I'll ask the questions and then everybody participates. And we have a really nice vibe about some of those community things. But really, yeah, I, I've found it often quite lonely. And I think some of that is, it's got nothing to do with anybody else. It was to do with me. You know, I've always been um, welcomed and liked here, but it's taken me some years to, I suppose, find people who share some of my interests and passions. Um, so, yeah, you learn how to be alone, which is wonderful. It's, it's a great opportunity, really. Moving from the town to the country, did that mean you were meeting and socialising with people who you normally would not have met and socialised with in your previous life? Oh, completely. I mean, you can go through every sort of um, label or whatever with that one. For instance, I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time with women um, ever since I came out as a young lesbian. That's been my main connections. Whereas here, this is a very heterosexual community with a very high percentage of single male households. Um, so strangely, a lot of the great connections I've had out here have been with men. Paulie, one of the guys in our fire brigade, I said to him one day, you know, I'm sorry, I feel so useless with so much of this work, this manual work. And he just looked at me and said, Haley, you know, really, I can't write stories or read like you do. We've all got our things. And I think, I think he taught, you know, a lot of people here have taught me a bit more about friendship. You just recognize so much in that other person and you feel known by that other person and I think I had a very high expectation of what friendship was and I think being in the bush I've learned that friendship is really varied and you know here in the bush people really support each other and they're aware of each other and they're there for each other and they help each other but there are all sorts of fences and boundaries which are pretty intact. I think uh, the way I talk and my kind of emotional language and register is different from a lot of people around me. And maybe those boundaries and fences are well placed. I don't know. There was this great sculptor, um, Keith, who used to live here. He built these huge chairs. Um, and it was just like a, a, an amazing playground in the bush with all his amazing structures and rocks and rock walls and rock caves. It was beautiful. And he would hold, the Lions Club would hold a, an annual Mother's Day barbecue at that at his place. And there'd be you know, a bit of music and all that sort of stuff. And I came away from the first one saying to Jen, I just don't fit here. I don't know. Is it this, you know, because I'm South African? Is it because I'm Jewish? Is it because I'm a lesbian? Is it because I'm an academic? <laughs> you know, well, how am I going to meet friends here? And Jen said to me, Haley, they're your neighbours. You don't have to marry them. <laughs> well, well, also in the country, the, the, sometimes you find this, sometimes you don't. But there's that old-fashioned idea of, you take people as you find them. Oh, absolutely. And I think I think that is the joy of meeting a diversity of people. I mean, I've always loved the conversation on public transport. Like, I'm, I'm a chatty person. So I love those 
just those strange encounters. Um, but I think what, what happened a lot for me is I'm really, I'm quite good at asking questions and I learn a lot about other people. I'm curious, but often what will happen is nobody asked me and I kind of felt a bit like I didn't exist. You know, my, my passions and my preoccupations were so very different from those that are here. Like I can sit and talk about the fire brigade and cattle and the heritage value of the bridge or the fencing over at Frankie's. You know, there, there is all that that I can listen to and be part of the conversation, but it's not really my thing. And I guess that's where I felt a little bit outside, even though I was so warmly welcomed, because it's a very welcoming place. And I guess, you know, what I've learned is everybody probably feels a little bit outside, Richard. You know, I think we all have it in some way. And I think this whole notion of us and them, it's, it's sort of amorphous. There's no real us that one has to fit into. A few years ago in 2016, I went down to Melbourne and I was so happy because I was just around people who came from all over the world. I didn't feel I had to fit into anything. It was just, I could be a newcomer rather than an outsider. I was in heaven. And then I came back and I put up a couple of maps at the hall, one of the world and one of Australia. And I just put up a sign and said, where do we all come from? And it was fascinating because, they, you know, they landed up being about eight pins in Europe and me, obviously, from South Africa and a woman from the family from Param in Russia. There were people from elsewhere and there were lots of pins on the Australian map. Well, about, you know, 80 or something. And all of them were not that far from this area. But everybody who's come here has come from somewhere. So... I think it's that, you know, it is just diversity wherever we are. You were talking before about the fences that are there between people. What about literal fences? Because that's a large part of the work on the land is fence making and fence fixing. How are you at all that? Oh, Richard, digging holes in rocky country is hell. I just don't use my body that well. I'm better than I used to be, but still not great. Jen's really knows how to use her body well, so she's very able with that. We've we've done a lot of fencing because obviously you have bushfire, so you do more fencing. You know, I tie off and I do those sorts of quite basic things, but I'm the sidekick, the offsider. That's that's all I am. I have learned much more about working cattle. You know, when you've been a very intellectual person and you come into a manual world, it's humbling. It's deeply humbling. And when you're impatient and you want to learn quickly, it's even more humbling because you can't. Jen's always like, this takes years to learn, Haley." But, you know, I haven't been particularly patient with some of those jobs. Have you had to learn how to be a cow midwife, Haley? Well, I've been the, I've been the assistant. Reluctant to gross out your audience, Richard. Um, nah, go ahead. Oh, I was a bit, I was a bit horrified when I first met Jen and, you know, at, at a nice restaurant dinner with some friends I wanted to introduce her to. She starts talking about, you know, putting prolapsed uteruses back into cows and <laughs> she would often land up in describing castration. <laughs> Jen's had the ways she does things here and a lot of those came from her neighbour, Jack, who was her best mate. He died in 2006, but he and Jen used to do everything together and they used to castrate. And I was quite horrified when, you know, on one of my early weekends, Jen said, Jack and I have got some cattle work to do we could do with a hand. And I'm like, I'll sit and watch things. So as the drought just dragged on and on and the land's getting drier, was it like waiting for something to break the spell, rain or fire? Look, Richard, it's a, we've had a very particular experience of drought um, in the last few years. 
where we are is vastly different from people out west. So I really feel for all those, you know, those images of children who've never seen rain, all of that. It has never got as devastating. But it, it land when you've got cattle and there's no feed, it becomes incredibly difficult. Unfortunately for us, last year, um, last March, I was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer. So I was quite ill. And we kind of did a bit of a calculation about what was realistic in terms of the herd. And we destocked quite significantly. But we did keep all the heifers who'd been grown here and some of the cows and calves. So we still had a, you know, a, a significant herd for this country. And so it was really, it was very tricky, Richard, because Jen was having to feed stock as well as being very concerned about me and trying to help me. And I was pretty unwell. So um, every Wednesday was chemo Wednesday and Jen would have to drive me to Lismore, which is more than an hour and a half's drive for us. And it's a very long day. So we actually had a friend. She would come out here on a Tuesday and she would stay the night with us. And in the morning, she would get up and go and do the feeding for the cattle. And she would be here with dinner for us when we got home from town. Because Jen was feeding twice a day. And, you know, you just, it's really tricky when you, not only financially, I mean, you know, the enormous cost of, of fodder, but there's also the dams that go dry. And that was horrible, Richard, because the approaches to the dams get really muddy and the, the cattle get stuck in the mud. And actually, last February, we just pulled a cow from a dam. And then Jen landed up, you know, having to try and clear those dams so that cattle could get into the last remaining bit of water. So you're worried about the cattle and everybody's hungry and following you. Um, you're trying to source good hay. On top of that, you're dealing with whatever's happening personally in your lives. And you're just waiting for rain to come. You're just praying for it. And you've got no sense that it's going to. Because the weather pattern's weird, Richard. Like in 2018, our fire season started in August. Normally it's October-ish, November. So everything's a bit skew-if. and broadcast this is conversations with richard feidler Haley, you mentioned you were convening a bushfire group what kind of training had you had before the bushfires came back in 2002 when this place burnt down um there was actually, we were, we were camped at the community hall, which was the, the fire coordination centre. And there was this really lovely couple, Marcia and Harry, who were, you know, from the Elmara um, near Grafton, from that headquarters. And they'd been volunteers for years and years because their house had burnt down at some point. And Marcia and Harry took to Jen and I, and they, they were just on our case to join the fire brigade. It was very much a boys club at that point. But with their encouragement, we did join and yeah, look, uh, the first fires I went out on, I basically was quite terrified and horrified by the whole situation. It was scary. Um, you know, I watched people need eye drops because of the smoke and it was horrible and I had no skills. And it was a lot of years, like we did our basic firefighter training. So, you know, you, you do a whole lot of book work over two weekends and then um, there's a whole lot of practical you have to do too. And then there's more practical here. The system has changed quite a lot in the years, in the 17 years that I've been part of the brigade. There's some great new training models and mechanisms that they have, especially for a brigade like ours, which is quite isolated and remote. So we got trained then. I, I used to go on some of the fires, but, you know, Richard, 
the thing about manual work, and it's the hurry up and wait philosophy, really, like you race like crazy. The call comes or the pager comes. You race, you tie the dogs, you put on your yellows, you race out the gate, you lock the gates, you get to the shed, and then you get in the truck and then you get somewhere. And sometimes you just wait because you've got to wait for the wind to change direction, the fire to come out of the bush for instructions. So we did years of that. Then they just made me president of the brigade and, you know, let me use my skills rather. But you don't really feel part of the team unless you're out on the fire line, really. So what was great is a few years ago, there was another woman who'd moved to the community and somehow having her around helped me go back out on the fire line. And Jen by then, you know, brigade had changed quite a lot. Jen was sort of deputy captain and we had now we could actually mount a women's team. And, you know, some of the chaps were more... Um, helpful with someone like me and we really work as a team so all of that really helped Richard like I've I've learned a lot particularly in the last few years of going out on fires and we've had some hectic fires here. So in October last year what signs were there that something was coming your way? That was crazy windy day Jen had been down doing some cattle work and she'd seen the column of smoke and she came home and she said to me I think we need to get cracking and, you know, we always do hazard reduction burns around our place. We always do that. We've got quite a big asset protection zone, which we put in after the 2002 fires. We've got a dam that is purely for firefighting, and that dam had not gone dry. So we we're very lucky. We had a pump from there. We've got little firefighting nozzles attached to our taps. We've got hoses right round. It's all set up. But what happened on that day is we saw that it, there was this column of smoke, and we'd known if the fire was up, you know, the fire had been up um, in this area a month earlier, but it had been monitored day by day. But it, whatever had happened, you know, tree roots burn underground. You never know with fire. Anyway, bad, bad winds, tempestuous, took off. And there's you still on the last stage of chemotherapy. Yeah, this is me, chemo girl, basically, trying to shove the outside veranda soft furnishings inside. Jen's outside hosing down the house. We've got the pump going at the dam. Um, I'm putting wet towels and things around doorways and... Then my neighbour, Karen, rang and said, Haley, it's in our bottom gully, which meant that it was on its way towards us. So, you know, put the dogs inside, fill up buckets. Like, we're just working, Richard. Crazy, crazy. And then you see it in the trees, and then suddenly it's here. And, like, it came from the southwest. And then next thing, I looked to the east, which is the other side of the house where the firefighting dam is, and there was a whole shed which had a whole lot of old building materials and the old stables. All of that is suddenly on fire. And it's like it was just spotting all over us. Um, what was the sky like? It did go dark. And Jen said to me at one point, drop to the ground, drop to the ground. And, you know, I was completely, I was hanging on really by a thread. I was, you know, in chemotherapy. And I'm only like a couple of months out of very, very hectic surgery. Um, so it was sort of just trying to manage. I mean, I, you know, we had our yellows on, we had our, our protective gear on, helmets, the whole business, and we dropped. The sky was weird, the noises were weird. And then it's like, oh my God, but we've got to get and, you know, and deal with whatever spot fires are happening. Because it was like within a meter of the house, there were bits that were burnt. But um, when you say the sounds were weird, what do you mean? Well, it's sort of, it's sort of eerie. Like you've got wind. And you've got sort of tunnely sounds, and then you've got 
crackles and you've got things falling, you know, like you hear the big trees falling and you hear all the leaves. And I mean, it's so much, it was a dry tinderbox for us. Like, you know, everything here was just dry. So suddenly everything's going off and you hear that race of, I don't know, you don't know if you know that sound of fire going through blady grass and it sort of races and just crackles. Um, and what about the animals? What kind of noises were they making? Well, dogs were inside. Cattle were out, except for we had, so we'd had to wean all the calves really early because the cows, with the drought, the cows couldn't keep feeding. And they were down in the yards and Janet had this tarp over the top of the yards to give them shade, like there was water and feed for them down there. We couldn't go and see if they were okay because we couldn't leave here. That tarp got burnt, but only three of the calves had a little bit of burn on them. The rest were okay, which was lucky. The horses were gone, and they were, I don't know where, but... um, Hayley, the scene you're describing, it sounds really chaotic and dark and smoky and strange. Was it hellish? No, and I think that's something I'm really interested in there wasn't a hell of a lot of time for fear so it was busy that the dark stuff that didn't last terribly long that sort of weirdness and then it was just movement we just had to keep going and because it was sort of the the wind had thrown it everywhere so we lost our you're only as good as your best water source Richard so our our firefighting pump at the dam it stopped so suddenly there's no water coming out of the hoses and then the next thing we look up to the top there's no water coming out of the the taps in the house I went to try and fill up buckets inside and there was no water coming out of that water because our header tank the tank stand had got burnt so the header tank had fallen and there went all that water so all we had left then was the water tanks on the side of the shed and you know we were able fortunately to get water into buckets from there so we were just you chaotic you busy I was very focused on the house and Jen was quite focused on the hay shed because we had just bought 52 bales of the most beautiful hay from our neighbour Jeff to feed cattle and that at one point Jen said to me look over there and we saw our neighbour Frankie's hay shed um, had the hay in it and there was smoke so Jen said there it goes 52 bales gone so you know we were worried about how we were going to feed cattle so she was trying to save that shed I was trying to save our little guest cabin um, which we built after the 2002 fire. These lovely friends helped built it for us because my mother's library is in that. So it was kind of, we were both running around trying to save different parts. Um, and could you save the cabin? Yes, the cabin's there. It's so funny because the, the fence right next to it and the dog's kennel got, got burnt, but the fence next to it's got these odd, you know, bits where it burnt and then, you know, probably got water on it or something. But, you know, there was a generator. We didn't want the generator to burn. So you kind of, it's just spot fires. So you're just putting out little fires everywhere. The thing I reckon is that you're always sort of on your own when you live in the country. You've got to know you can defend the place yourself because the fire brigade can try and get there. But, you know, by the time the fire brigade gets there, it's often too late. So at what point did you realise you were going to live, Hayley, and the house was going to be okay? Um, But at about 6.30 that night, and this probably started, we don't know, maybe about three-ish 2.33, two of our neighbours, Paul and Karen, came up the driveway. They came to see if we were okay, and they helped us get some more stuff out of that hay shed, the the hay, so we could put it in a burnt spot because it burnt in front of the house too. So we basically got burnt around. The neighbour behind me thought we were going to be skeletons when he came to find us later that night. But 
I think that maybe the fingers of the fire didn't get us as badly as it got some others. My neighbour Terry lost his beautiful dream home. He spent like more than a decade building this house. It was nearly finished and he hadn't yet got insurance for it because the insurance companies had been difficult because he hadn't had his final approval. And it burnt because Terry was away. He was away working. Um, And so... Yeah, that's been completely devastating to see that happen. Um, And really, that's it. You know, if you're at home, you've got more chance of saving it. If you're not, it's really tough. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you saved the house. Yes, we saved the house. What's the feeling like when you realise the crisis is over? Oh, well, you're so tired, Richard. (laughs) I mean, I was, you know, obviously doing it a bit tough with chemo, but Jen got, you know, her her muscles went into complete spasm and she got the most awful smoke inhalation from trying to put little bits of water, because I kept saying, you're using the water on the hay, it would need it for the house. Um, She was putting water on the hay because she didn't want that shed to burn and she wound up with really bad smoke inhalation. And then, really, we we dragged the... The house was just full of smoke, even though it had been closed. We dragged the swag out to try and lie down quite late. But we still kept getting up all through the night because we saw little bits of flame everywhere. So you're just really tired. Um, You don't know what's happened to the rest of your neighbours. We don't... You know, we... Interestingly, the phone didn't go... Normally, we lose our phones, and we don't have mobile reception here normally. But we fortunately did still have the satellite internet, and the phone did keep working. So we knew a few people were safe. I imagine Terry's house was gone, but I didn't know. Not until the next morning did we go for a, did I go out and have a proper drive. Um, and then we went to hospital, to be honest, because Jen was really not all right and they kept her in overnight. Jen's sister came and looked, stayed at the place for us while we were away because we were still feeling a bit at threat. And um, one of my dear friends and her two grown up children came and did some cleaning and helped out a bit. It's all quite weird. Um, And then there's everybody's loss. So, you know, we were lucky, but then, you know, (laughs) it's just completely awful to see those places that have been lost. Hayley, tell me about the day that rain finally came to the property. Look, we got a tiny little bit in the weeks afterwards. I think there was a few mil here and there, but that was really nothing uh, for a couple of months it was still very dry so we were dusty sooty dry horrible um jen and i actually took off and we went to the coast we'd sold the cattle by then and we just thought stuff it we're going to be in the green and the clean and not be in this filth and then the flood came in february we got a massive flood and we were kind of coming back every 10 days to the farm just to you know check on the few cattle who were left and everything and we got out just before the flood because we get flooded in here quite easily but It's amazing, Richard, to watch the bush recover after drought and then fire is the most extraordinary experience. Like we're almost seven months now and it's beautiful. I mean, now when I walk through the paddocks, the grass is thigh high. The dogs kind of have to leap, really. And, you know, we have to pull out lots of grass seed. 
you see the, the roos leaping high above these high grasses and you know the trees have got these sort of whiskers sprouting all up and down their trunks lots of the bark has shed you know for weeks you still keep hearing after a fire you still hear the big trees tumble and that's the saddest thing all these big habitat trees that that die and fall but there's lots of trees here that were I really thought they would never recover and it's in the last month or so that they have been coming back we've got this amazing array of colorful zinnias the wild zinnias which came after the 2002 fires and they came after this one as well so that was beautiful we've had no veggie garden obviously through the drought and now it's you know we got we're back here properly in March and we've planted since then well Jen's planted and it's gorgeous you know there's silver beet and there's lettuce and it's all kind of happening so it's it's beautiful. We have dams that are full. We have water, Richard. It's the most precious resource. It's like just add water and everything changes for everyone. Does it make you happy oh, to see the land regenerate? It's just the most wonderful thing, Richard. And for someone who's, you know, I, I've having come out of, I finished chemo um, in late November and then I kind of have been thinking my body is, it's like the body is bushfire, you know, it's, my body is coming back. I've got hair again. The bush has got leaves again. It's just this extraordinary process of recovery. And I do think that that's what, you know, being, living in a, in a landscape like this has really taught me about that change. Everything will change at some point. And the tough times often do come to something that is quite beautiful and wonderful and, yeah, has a nourishing quality about it. And that's what the bush feels like now. You know those those amazing little grass trees with that incredible, um, almost like a, a lime green leaf that sort of pours out of it like candles. They're like candles through the bush at the moment. I'm just loving it, Richard. It's beautiful. It's, it's stunning. <laughs> Maybe that's the biggest thing you've got from living in the country is that you can get to experience recovery on such an epic scale like you never could if you were living in a town or a city. I think so, Richard. I think, I think, being, I think being with the place through different seasons and being with the community through different seasons, yeah, I think it does shape us. I think places and landscapes shape us there's a beautiful writer i don't know if you've ever read rob mcfarlane and his book the old ways when he says you know what do i yes. know when i'm here that i can know nowhere else and you know i think the bush for me has certainly forced me to learn a kind of inner security and sanctity but seeing how things change seeing i suppose you know the buddhists would call it impermanence or whatever but you know it all does change and yeah, there is a season and a time. Um, but, you know, I think it's also that sometimes it's too tough to stick around for that. And I think, you know, in the, the wake of a big trauma like a bushfire, I understand why it's such a deeply personal decision. And for some people, it tears them away from the place and they don't get that chance for recovery. And I think to get that privilege of seeing a bush recover or, you know, when, when, when we had a whole gas movement um, anti-gas movement happening in the area you know there'd been lots of blockades where they hadn't been successful and the company had started doing their exploration and production but there was one blockade the Bentley blockade where there was a success and I think for people who'd been through all those hard blockades to then be part of a blockade where the gas 
mining didn't go ahead was just magnificent. I think it's to have those, to go through a tough thing and then to have the great thing come at the end, the reward almost, is wonderful. I've kept this this bay tree. I haven't, like, uh, uh, my friend Jesse and Andy and Julia, they came after the fire and they pruned every bush in every tree that had got burnt because all the little shrubs in the garden got burned. And the bay tree they pruned, but it came back um, still quite burnt. And I've kind of hung on to it. I know I need to prune it, but I'm sort of appreciating seeing those burnt leaves next to the new growth because it's like the two things live side by side in us all. You know, it's that thing about duality. I've known it in terms of place as a migrant. I've known it as a person who loves the city but also loves the country and wide open spaces. And I think, you know, you see that with the bush. There is such duality. And, you know, it's the light and the dark reminding you that it's sort of always there inside us and outside us. So lovely to speak with you, Hayley. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been a joy. I spoke to Hayley Katzen from her home in Uinga in May last year. And since then, she says the bush is slowly recovering. And so is she. Hayley's been cancer-free for 15 months now. And her memoir is called Untethered. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler for more conversations interviews please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app